is Matthew 12, 43 through 50. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is continuing to teach here in Matthew 12. He's just been speaking with the religious leaders and those that were around them. He spoke of the sign of Jonah, and now he comes to his teaching about the return of an unclean spirit. And perhaps a question that comes to mind, or maybe not, is what can you do by your own power? What is it that you have the ability to do? When we look around or when we examine our own lives or maybe we're just familiar with other people, we know that they can do a lot of things. God has given gifts, God has given abilities, and we can do a lot of things. But what is it that you can do by your own power that has the ability to survive the end? What can you do by your own power that will endure beyond your expiration date, whenever that might be? Because Jesus, as he speaks about this return of an unclean spirit, he talks about what he's talking about is really the woeful condition of the self-cleaned soul. Those who would seek to reform themselves and make themselves look the best that they can by their own power. And so as he addresses them, he speaks of this unclean spirit. It's interesting because 38 through 45, they're a call to all people, not just those religious leaders but a call to all people to repent and believe in Christ. And as we see this in the context of the greater passage, we see that it's another warning. He's already warned them with the sign of Jonah, and here comes another warning. And it's interesting what he chooses, because he chooses this casting out of a demon. Because what have the religious leaders, what have they just recently accused Jesus of? That he casts out demons by the power of and he's already said, okay, if that's the power by which I cast them out, by whose power do your sons cast them out? Implying that if that's the power he works by, then that's the power they work by. And they would say, well, they, they don't cast out by the power of the devil. And so Jesus here, for his illustration, uses, this, uses exorcism as an illustration. The word picture is the picture of a person who's had a demon cast out. This is the sense of the Greek word that is here translated gone out. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And so this person, this, this demon's gone out. Now notice, we aren't told by whom or what means the spirit was cast out. We know that it was cast out, and we're told that it's an unclean and evil spirit, a demon, and it's no longer residing in this person. Some options could be it had been cast out by Jesus. We see it happen. We've seen it happen. The demons get in his presence. And they, have no, they can't do anything but obey him and leave when he casts them out. Perhaps it was one of the Jewish exorcists. 
In Matthew 12, 27, Jesus has already hinted, alluded to the fact that there were, there were Jewish exorcists that went around. And it seems that they had some success in that practice. Or, or maybe, maybe a personal commitment to reform one's life. As Jesus is addressing the religious leaders who were so diligent to strain out even a gnat and to tithe even of their mint and their dill and their cumin, there's at least a possibility of that option as well. I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to get my house in order. As such, we know that however this unclean spirit has been cast out, it's been cast out. And it's looking for somewhere. It's looking for, for, for another home. It's looking for rest. But it finds none. But before we get to its return, we also have to note something. That this spirit, this, the eviction of the spirit, it doesn't mean that the person from whom it was evicted is now what? Saved. It just means the evil spirit's gone out of them. The demon's been cast out. The person's been delivered from the oppression that was present with its residents. This is a good thing. But again, as borne out in this teaching by Jesus, the absence of this unclean spirit is not the same as salvation. It's evidence, at least, of what Jesus has already said in Matthew 5.15. He makes his rain fall on the just and the unjust. We've read about Capernaum and the works that were done there, which included casting out of demons. And we've already heard Jesus pronounce judgment upon Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin for the wonders that they had seen. And so it's true that even Jesus could cast out demons, but as Jesus cast out demons, that does not mean that those people necessarily did what? Believed or followed him. They loved the gift, but they didn't believe or follow the giver. So we know that's possible. Jesus bears it out as an earthly ministry. He's healing all who are brought to him, but that doesn't mean they believed in him, let alone followed him. This unclean spirit, as it had been cast out, we see that it went looking for a place to rest. And what does it find? It doesn't find one. And so we know from what we read that he's not going to wander forever. And so as it wanders and it looks for a place to rest, it finds none. Where does he return? He comes back to check out his old stomping grounds, if you will. The old house that he was in. It's interesting that just as in the physical world, nature abhors a vacuum, so in the spiritual world. So this house has been cleaned, it's been put in order. This man, when, when this demon was cast out, when it was removed from him, whoever this person is, they failed to receive a new master and his short-lived self-mastery set him up for a greater fall. That's what Jesus puts forward, says that the final, the last state of that person is worse than the first. The unclean spirit. Did you notice what he calls it? When he returns? He goes and he finds no place for rest. And he says, I will return to what? My house. I will return to my house. He calls it his house. 
There's been no change of ownership. And this flies in the face of, well, I am my own man. I've made myself. I'm my own woman. I've made myself. I follow no master but myself. Well, that's not really true, is it? Though we might like to put that forward. This unclean spirit makes it clear that this one wasn't his own master. Because if he was his own master, it would be what? His house. But it's not his house. The Spirit says it's my house. There's been no change of ownership. But the house has been emptied. It's been swept. It's been put in order. And God is a God of order. And this must be pleasing. The house looks good. So they've gone through a cleaning phase. Congratulations. Anybody like self-help? I can take care of this by my own power. They've gone through such a tremendous cleaning phase. What does this house look like? It's so clean that it doesn't look like anyone lives there. It's empty. And as that house is empty... So this person, this man's, this person's, this life is empty. Because though many of us enjoy a clean house, when our houses are clean, what is still obvious? There's life there. Those houses that are clean, what are, what what do we see? We also see who they serve. It's, it's revealed there. Now, don't go home and start just massively cleaning your house. Pastor says that I have to clean my house because then it reveals that I truly serve. No, you can, you can find the presence of Christ in a place with a... Pick your dirty room. He's talking about inside. He's talking about that cleaning that's taken place. So clean, but there's no new master. It's the same one. The question, the question that comes from this is, why did you do that? Because clean, to clean, it's, it's a good thing to clean up. I mean, we could get any number of different answers. I just had a feeling that I needed to do this. Excellent. Why? Well, the lady on TV, she said I needed less stuff. So now I have less stuff. The guy on YouTube said I need to make my bed. So now I make my bed. Okay. Less stuff is fine. That's, that's good. Why do you need or want less stuff? A made bed is good. A clean house is great. Why, why did you make it? Why did you clean it? Because whoever it was said it would make my life better. Okay. Do you believe them in every other realm of your life as well? Well, yes, no, maybe. Because it's more organized. All right, well, that, that's good. There's nothing bad about organization. Well, it's safer than letting things pile up all over. I, I, I agree with you there, too. I like not stepping on Legos or tripping over things in the middle of the night. It gets me into a better mental space. That's good. That's good as well. What happens when it doesn't? 
Because all those things are good things, but if they're the ultimate thing, if that's what you put up there as this is the reason that I do this, when you can no longer do that, or when it doesn't stay the way that it needs to be, what happens? At some point when it doesn't work out because you physically can't do it or mentally can't carry it or whatever it is, then all of a sudden that thing that brought the better mental space, that thing that just made everything more comfortable, what happens? Life falls apart. Despair starts to set in. Because what did those things that gave you a better mental space do? Or I had less stuff, but I'm still missing something. Because even in the midst of less stuff, my heart was still moving in which direction? Away from God. This person in Jesus' story, they, they, they've emptied, they've swept, they've put in order a house. But do you hear Jesus' concern for them? There's no new ownership. There's no new master there. You've done these things, but these things won't save you. He cares about them. Even these ones who are so adamantly opposed to them because that's what, who he's speaking to. He sounds a lot like another story, another illustration that he's going to speak before them. This house that's so clean and has been made immaculate sounds a lot like a cup and a plate that he'll talk about. Before them, in even, more, in even more stark terms, in Matthew 23, 25 and 26, he says, woe to you. The end of his life is approaching at that point. He says, woe to you. He's trying to get through to them with the prophetic utterance of judgment. Woe to you because you clean the outside. But the inside, it's full of greed and self-indulgence. It's like that house I told you guys about so long ago. It's cleaned and swept in order, but the master there is, there's no new master. It's the same master that there was. You've cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside is still full of all these things, and you're still not following God. You still don't believe in the one that he sent. And until that changes, it's, it's woe to you that he pronounces there. So we see this house that's been swept, it's been put in order. But that unclean spirit, it goes and it, it doesn't just move back in by himself. What does he bring? If you like alliteration, here you go. He brings barbarous buddies. Not barbers, barbarous like barbarians. They come in. And what do they do? I don't know how that goes about, but the one thing I do know from what we see here, how much resistance was offered? Seems like none. When it comes and it finds, says, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. They come and there's seemingly no resistance because you in your own power cannot what? You can't resist. The only one who brings resistance is Christ. The only one who can take over that place and keep from ever coming in again is the Holy Spirit. 
There's seemingly no resistance to the unclean spirit and seven of his more beastly buddies that move back in. What, basically, they show up at the door. They say, hey, you let me in once. You'll let me in again. Anybody struggle against a sin that regularly comes back? How does that feel? He comes says, you let me in once, you let me again. Oh, I brought some friends this time too. You don't mind, do you? Of course you don't. Make no mistake, they were return to do what, the only thing that they do. They don't come in to enjoy the nice clean digs that there are now. They come in to do what? The same thing that their master does. Steal, to kill, to destroy. Because that's all that they do. And it's one thing to say it from the spiritual realm. What does it sound like when, we when, when this happens in our life? Or when we're walking along with a brother or sister who struggles with, with something, whatever it is, or those who maybe aren't there yet, and they say, I did the best I could. I'm, using, I'm doing everything I can. Can you, can, you, can, you give me, can you give me any more ideas? I've tried this and I've tried that. And I've listened to this and I've watched that. But it's still not, it's still not changing anything. Have you been there when the despair sets in? I guess this is just who I am. And then it goes further. I know you believe in him, but he can never love me. Because look at this. On one hand, we would, we would say, you're right, you did the best you could. I encourage you not to say that. That's not <laughs> necessarily. It depends on the relationship and the people. You could say that. What you want to do is you want to bring them to that one again. You can't do anything by your own power. You can't overcome this thing that's dominating you and destroying you by your own power. Because man without Christ does not get better. Indeed, he cannot. Because there's no salvation or hope outside of Christ. Now, there's, that's not to say there's not a number of ways, ways to improve. There's a number of ways to improve in the eyes of the world. In whatever way one would choose, if they continue to put it first and foremost, that'll be what they worship. And when it fails, they'll go in search of another something or someone. And the world will approve as long as they continue to reject Christ, either passively or actively, and indulge the ways of the flesh and the world and or the devil. And as that takes place, they will grow harder harder, worse and worse, though it may not be noticed by those observing the service. They're keeping it all together. Notice what I didn't say. They are not beyond what? The reach of his word, him. And that's why God calls us, that's why God calls us in Christ. If you are in Christ, he calls us to endurance. Endurance within this body. Endurance among the one body of Christ. Endurance in the places 
that we live among the people that we serve, whether believers or non-believers, that we would endure, that we bear witness to truth, that we bear witness to the one who can save and the only one who can save. Because what we have to communicate to people, and again, in a way that expresses love, and it can be hard sometimes because anybody that's got a friend or anybody that looks in the mirror at someone that they know really well, that struggles, that has vices, bad habits, want to give them up, and that's a good thing, giving up a vice or vices, those bad habits, it, it, it may be good. But what isn't there in that? There's no salvation in that. That's not to say you shouldn't kick your bad habits, but there's no salvation in giving up a vice or a vice or vices. Just think of it this way. Arguably, what's the best work that anyone could do? Arguably, the best work that anyone could do would be to clean their soul, right? I mean, that's who they are. But we know from Scripture that the best of our works are as filthy rags or a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that. And further, here's the, here's the thing, the, to claim or act as though we can clean our own soul, just starting with ourselves, let alone show or instruct someone else, I know what you need to do. We always are perfect. We're always experts in what someone else needs to do, right? Maybe not you. Maybe it's just me. If we claim or act as though we can clean our own souls, or show or instruct another how to clean their own souls, then we have the answer. It reveals an arrogance that rails against God and His provision of the only one who can cleanse and renew a soul. Unless our answer for that cleaning of the soul is to go to Christ, the answer is wrong. Soul cleaning done by any other power than that provided by God through Christ is to say to God, you can take this one off. I got it. No, you don't. Go back and read Joshua. Right in the beginning, when they go across, they conquer Jericho. They follow God's directions to a T and Jericho drops. Then there's this little town up on the hill called Ai. That's little, there's not many there. Take a, take a little excursionary force, it'll drop real quick. Guess what? They turned tail and ran. Who did they not listen to? Who did they not ask for direction and how to approach it? The same one that gave them the directions to overcome Jericho and all of its tall walls. They end up conquering AI because they return, they confess their sin, and God says, okay, now here's how you're going to do it. But the victory comes by God's direction and God's design. Soul cleaning done by any other power than that provided by Christ. To say to God, you can take this one off, I've got it, but it goes against Scripture as well. Psalm 49, 7-9 says, Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of the, their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. 
Daniel Doriani in his commentary on this section of scripture says, if partial reform drives out a, drives out a demon, the house must not stand empty. A new master has to move in. A new master must take up residence and a new light must shine there. Then he will be free. And this is where the wonder of the gospel steps in because where Psalm says there's no man who can ransom another, we come to Mark that 1045. And what does it say? says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Because why? Because he's the only one that can do it. Here he comes to give a ransom. He says in John 10, 10 and 11, the thief comes to only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That thief sounds like an unclean spirit that would move into where? That heart that's been so well organized by your own power. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later on in that same passage in verses 17 and 18, he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I have come to ransom. I have come to give life. And he also says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, which we've read recently, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And come back to what this unclean spirit was looking for. What was he looking for? He was looking for rest. And who was going to provide that rest? You were. But as he finds rest in you, he says, hey, I'd be more comfortable over there. Why don't you go over there? Okay, let's go over there. Well, I'm not as comfortable over here as I thought. Let's go over there. Okay, I'll go over there. It doesn't seem like there's anything. Who's giving who rest? And as long as you're giving rest to that unclean spirit, as long as you're giving that rest to whatever that is, what are you going to, you're going to be the servant of it. What does Jesus say? What's he already said? Where that unclean spirit was looking for rest in you, he says, come to who? Come to me. Because who's going to give rest? I'm going to give you rest. Because why? Because I'm the ransom. Because I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Come to me that you would find rest. Stop imitating my, my brothers and sisters that were back in Israel with their idols. That when the Babylonians came knocking on the door, they had to load their idols up and take them to a place where they might be delivered. Guess what? They weren't delivered. And who were the ones who were carrying who? Stop carrying them around. Flee. Come to me. I will give you rest. I will be your shelter. I will be the one who, when they come to say, hey, can I move back in? They'll flee because my spirit is within you. The last state of that person is worse than the first if they continue in this way. So also will it be with this evil generation. That's an inclusio. It's like a verbal parenthesis that takes you back to Verse 39. So this goes together. 
It's as though Jesus is saying, you men are dedicated to the achievement of holiness and righteousness, but you think you can be righteous on your own. If you had a bad habit, you confess it and break it, but you'd never come to me. You are resting on your own righteousness, your own performance. You are like this man who had a demon. The demon left, so he cleaned up his house, but he had no way to keep that demon from returning. That's you. You're empty inside. Let us not put forth a gospel that says clean yourself up and then come. Because that's what's part of what's on display here. But we don't leave that there because we know in Christ we have been filled with what? The house that's been cleaned and put in order and all of that. Who's, there's, there's been a transfer of ownership. Whose house is it? It's God's house. The Holy Spirit comes in. What Jesus implies here to them is that if he had entered the home, then the home's proper king would have exercised his sovereign reign there. That's the implication. He would have prevented this final tragic state. Because whenever God draws near to us, and above all, when he approaches us in the person of his son, the design is to rescue us from the tyranny of the devil and to receive us into his favor. Come to me. He is drawn near. When, when, the, when the Spirit comes, we know that new birth from John 3 comes through the Spirit. The joy of being filled with the Spirit is that the new birth comes from the Spirit. And when we confess Christ and place our trust in Him, we're filled with the Spirit. Not part way. All the way. All the way, if you're in Christ, it's Acts 2.38 where Peter, as he finishes his sermon, they say, what must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're filled. He didn't remove everything, clean them up, and say, now do the best that you can do, and we'll see how it all shakes out in the end. That's not what he said. You'll be filled with the Spirit. And that's a filling that takes place and it continues. He fills us with the Spirit. We're said to ask that He would continue to fill us with the Spirit. Not that there's anything, but He continues to fill. He has filled. He is filling. He will fill. And there's, we, we square this and we, we, we recognize and we rejoice in it because we also know that Jesus has promised that He will never what? I will never leave you or forsake you. When the Spirit moves in, you've got the front guard and the rear guard and the side. He's, if you don't, I don't know, I don't go to movies much anymore, but they used to have one that say, all around you. And it would creep me out. But it's like the speakers are all around. The Spirit is all around you. Where the Spirit takes up residence, Scripture tells us and we confess no unclean or evil spirit can enter in. Now, they can harass. They can tempt. And they can be generally annoying to the Christian. Absolutely. But they cannot possess. Because darkness has no part with light. And we also recognize, we recognize what Paul says, we fight not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities. And we can, we, can, we can predict, we know 
that, well, we can't, that the Christian with the Holy Spirit inside cannot be possessed in any way, shape, or form. We know that we can be harassed. We recognize the assault will be redoubled when that happens because that was a house of what? Jesus is coming down the strong man that he might what? Plunder his house. As he plunders his house, those ones that he's brought to himself, he fills with his spirit. They're filled up so that when that unclean spirit might come back and say, hey, how's it going? He doesn't meet you at the door. He meets the Holy Spirit at the door and says, you're not welcome here anymore. All right, well, I'm going to set up a picket outside your house and I'm just going to start to make life really annoying for you. Okay, I'm still here and I'm still going to guard them and protect them and nothing you can do to take them out of my hand because I will not leave them or forsake them. They're struggling right now to remember that. We all know that, right? We have our moments, but I'm present. Whatever may be the fierceness or violence of Satan's attacks, they ought not to intimidate the sons of God. That's part of why he's given us each other as well. The Spirit has that testimony, but we have that testimony. You are in Christ. You are his. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will defend and protect you. But I'm going, I know you're going through that, but remember he's with you. He is at work, and I'm not going to presume to say this is why it's all taking place, but I will stand with you. But there's one who stands even closer, praise God. Because the invincible power of the Holy Spirit preserves in safety. He keeps us. When that spirit, he keeps us as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32.10 says he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. That's the protection that you have in Christ. That's the protection and the preserving power of the Spirit within you. Psalm 17, 8 and 9 says, keep me as the apple of your eye. We pray this back to him. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. Because my deadly enemies surround me. You've been saved in a fallen world. Once you are in Christ, who surrounds you? Yes, deadly enemies, but you are preserved. Submit to the Spirit. Confess Christ. Know that filling. And know that whatever it was, that doesn't mean everything will be fixed in a blink. But He's present, and He's at work, and He's refining, and He's conforming you to the image of Christ. And while Jesus is teaching, he's speaking, and there's people outside, and they say, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. And some manuscripts include verse 47, which says, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. And Jesus says this thing that says, here are my mother and my brothers. He asks this question, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he turns, right, stretches out his hand towards his disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is no disrespect to his family. But his family, it seems, would want to take him away from the work that God has called him to do. And remember, Jesus has said, anyone who loves his father or his mother or his brother or his sister more than me is what? He's not worthy of me. He's living by the same things that he loves his father and the work his father's given him more than so he's going to remain there. But more than that, he makes this wonderful announcement. Who are my brothers and sisters? Who are my mother and brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Adoption. Brought into. Chosen. Loved. Equipped. Filled 
That's who they are. That's what he speaks of. These are my brothers and my sisters, my mothers. The family we are a part of as Christians, as being in Christ, and who we're to call people to. Notice, it's not salvation by works. Jesus does not say, whoever does the will of my Father enters my family. He says, whoever does the will of my Father. This teaching indirectly points to Jesus himself. If doing the will of the Father is the distinguishing sign of Jesus' family, then he is the one who teaches the Father's will. And the core of that will is not follow these commands, but follow me. And as you follow me, you'll be found doing the things I do, loving the things I love, speaking the words I spoke. And when we consider this, we can never consider this enough, can we? Because you can't exhaust the depths of Christ and who he is and what he's done and the love he has for his brothers and sisters and mothers. We never form a right estimate of the excellence of Christ until we consider for what purpose he was given to us by the Father and perceive the benefits, see the benefits that he's brought to us so that we who are wretched in ourselves may be happy in him. That's an old theologian from like 400 years ago. God's free adoption of us, which we obtain by faith, is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying in verses 46 through 50, they present the need to accept him as he is, to follow him loyally, to believe in him, and to find identity in him. It's like the questions, the questions of who is your God? Whom do you follow? If you say, this is my God, but you follow something else, we'll say, well, that's not your God. If someone sees you following something and they go, wow, that's different, and you say, well, they would ask you, who do you follow? And you would say, oh, that, that makes sense. They answer each other. But did you know we meet someone in Scripture as we come to our conclusion? Did you know we meet someone in Scripture who demonstrates this? Who had evil spirits cast out and it did the will of the Father? We know her. She gets maligned by many for words that aren't in Scripture about her at all. She's been called a whore and a prostitute when we have no scriptural evidence of that at all. The only thing that we know about her prior to following Christ, we read about her in Luke 8, 2. There's a group of women that followed Christ. As he afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom seven demons had gone out. She had a house that had unclean spirits. That's what we know. There were seven evil spirits that were cast out of her. Now the questions come. Did he cast all seven out at once? We're not told. Did Was it seven different times? We're not told. 
Does the number seven reveal how completely oppressed she was by the demons who resided within her? Seven being that number of completion? It could be any of those. All of those. If it is that number that reveals how completely oppressed she was, look at the mercy of the Savior. Because what did he do? They had no power. Because he had come and they're gone. And what do we see her doing? Following him. Going where he goes. And do you want to know where we see the wonder of what's been done and the heart that's been changed? This one we find in John 20. Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they've laid him. Say, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Where did she throw herself? The place that all those who trust and fear Christ do at his feet. Because why? She had been emptied out and filled. That complete domination that had been there had been removed. And there was a new owner. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This sister of Christ, she didn't leave the house empty. She followed him, and she showed up outside that grave. And she reveals to us what we are in Christ perfectly provided for and kept by the Savior. Made into his home. Renewed. A new creation. If you haven't confessed him yet, please confess. If you have confessed him, continue to confess him. Every day. You are God. You are my Savior. Have mercy upon me. Fill, me. fill me with your spirit that I would walk by his power. Clean my life up, but don't let me start to try to think I can do it on my own. Do it in your power, in your time. Let me submit to you. Confess Christ and walk in the power of the spirit. Know the joy of what Mary Magdalene knew. She'd been delivered. She was being, she, had, she was saved and she was being saved. Walk in the power of the Spirit. 
recognize that you, in Christ, maybe all at the same time and in one day and throughout your life, are simultaneously Romans 6, 7, and 8. Go home and read them. But Romans 6 tells you that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That you are not a slave to sin anymore, but a, a slave and a servant to righteousness by the Spirit. Romans 7 tells you you're released from the law, but guess what? You still struggle against that sin. And Romans 8 tells you what? That you are alive in the Spirit. There is a future glory to come, but right now, right here in Him, with the Spirit in you, you are more than a conqueror. Not because of yourself. Because of He who resides within. And He will defeat every enemy.